in the quest to bring modern software technology to banking, this much is obvious. What existed before was cumbersome, awkward, and backward. But to get to where we need to be, what leaps need to be made? Enter a person who has cracked that code and then some, causing a revolution with a company that he has formed that's growing in leaps and bounds. Today, the two Ds have Paul Taylor, the CEO of Thought Machine. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. Dave and Dom demystify show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dom Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Dom Demystify show. And this week we're going to continue the theme of demystifying core banking and we have a really special guest in Paul Taylor, CEO of Thought Machine. Welcome, Paul. Uh, hello. Yes, welcome. For those, and I'm sure there's nobody that doesn't know you, but <laughs> anyway, for those that might not know you, can you tell us a bit about yourself? And and actually, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you started Thought Machine, when it happened, how it happened? Yeah, so I've been working in the UK tech scene for more than 20 years. Before that, I was an academic, so I was working in AI and speech technology at Edinburgh University, so I did that for a long time. Um, but I did my first startup in 2000, sold that in 2004, did my second startup, uh, sold that in 2010, and the second one, I sold to Google. And then I worked for Google for three years as a software engineer, very much on the front line, writing code every day. So that was about the last time I wrote code. Oh, wow. Can I just ask you quickly, what were those startups? I'm just intrigued. Oh, they were all on speech technology. So we were building text-to-speech systems, which is the speech output, speech recognition, and speech input. And that was the subject I'd studied at university. So I became an expert in that, too much of an expert, in the sense that I knew <laughs> a ton about that, not too much about anything else, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's very difficult technology, but it ended up in a good place because just as... Uh, the whole world of you know voice control computing was taking over with Siri and Alexa and Google now that you know we were in the right place at the right time. So we were acquired by Google and became part of the Google speech family. Wow. And the technology today is used everywhere. So every time you do voice search with Google and hear the answer back or all the driving directions on Android or all the driving directions on Android maps, all, all that's the technology we help develop. Wow. Right. So you wrote some code inside a decent chunk of the code when we were acquired and as we went live as a team effort, there were many people on the team. I was kind of mostly along the algorithm side, designing the kind of core algorithms and doing a bit of the code. And I believe that some of the code is still running today. I believe they've got some other systems in there as well, but it's still recognizably our system when I hear it in the driving directions. That's fantastic. I mean, the obvious question now is, you know, so how did you come about to start to write Thought Machine? Because you know, Elon Musk had a go at trying to build a digital bank and, you know, found it too difficult. But how did you make this leap from doing speech to doing core banking? Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is that depending on your viewpoint, different problems look in different ways. So the issue of launching a bank as a consumer facing bank is one proposition. 
But I and the Pulp Machine would not do that sort of thing. And the people who've done that, there's been varying degrees of success, but there's been quite a lot of success in the Challenger Bank market. Our play is a slightly different one. Our play is building the technology behind that. And building the technology behind that, even though it's serving the same end, it has a different business model and a different approach. The secret is kind of platform computing at Google in the middle. So if you think about it, we were a small company doing speech technology and we built our product, but it had very limited adoption. We go to Google, we put it into the Google Cloud platform, we put it into the Android operating system, and immediately it has availability to hundreds and millions of people. You can do that by the scalability of cloud computing, where you can get a regular bit of code and it can scale up to serve you know, an enormous level of traffic and usage and volume. So in doing that, I learned about the cloud and we didn't call it the cloud then, we just called it the Google infrastructure. But so many things, first of all, how to write software is extremely stable, extremely robust, extremely secure, got no security vulnerabilities. And one of the key lessons about Google is how a small team can have a big impact. Because often in software companies, especially in banking, to have a big impact, you need a big team, but that's very expensive. You know, it's ungainly. So all things being equal, you want a small team to have a big impact. So Google is very, very good at that. And so I, I learned all the tricks about how to do properly scalable computing at Google. And also in Google and things like voice search and different types of search and maps, the traffic in those applications is in the billions of users yeah. and in the hundreds of millions of requests a day. And when you go into banking, a bank looks pretty big, but it's not anywhere near as big as somewhere like Google Maps or somewhere like Gmail. So in other words, once you've got used to that scale of the user base and that scale of the transaction base, banking doesn't look frightening. It doesn't look like an overwhelming problem. Okay, but right. so I left Google and then wanted to do the next thing. Was very interested in FinTech, was always going to be a B2B business. So I wanted to do something that would help retail banks. So what was the problem we're trying to address? Well, you probably know, Retail banks have really struggled with the tech stack. They're typically generations behind on many aspects of it. And today, most banks have got mobile apps of a reasonable nature, but it's only a fraction of what you might want to do with a bank it has to be done there. You still need call centers, you still need branches. And we had a look at all the aspects of the banking stack, but one bit in particular looked interesting, which is core banking. And core banking is the most unloved part of the bank. It's got legacy technology. A lot of it still operates in mainframes. It uses old database technology, but it is the central part of the bank. That was where the ledger is, which stores the money. There is no other record of yeah. where the money is. That's where everybody's accounts are, where all the transactions are kept. And it's also the product engine, which calculates interest, calculates fees, and keeps everything ticking over. So it's a critical part of the bank, but it's been unloved and neglected, but this has caused damage to the banks because it's expensive to run. It's very difficult to change. It's very expensive to change and banks need to change all the time. I mean, you just need to look at the new products. As of today, we've got turmoil in the UK mortgage market. Things have to change quickly. These are difficult to do. We've got a mini consumer revolution in buy now, pay later. A lot of banks find that very, very difficult to implement on a core banking system because effectively it looks like one account, but there's lots and lots of little loans all stacked up, which is all have to have their own interest rates calculated, their own fee schedules calculated. So that's a difficult thing. Then I find that general problem that retail banks needed help. They needed help moving to the cloud. They needed help in modern software practices. But core banking in particular suited our Google-like skills because it was a platform play. It was about data. It was about massive levels of transactions. And also it was about doing it very, very well. It needs to be extremely stable, extremely robust, extremely secure. But that's our core skill set. Yeah. And so 
that's how non-banker people could enter this space successfully because to go from there to learn the additional part about how various banking products work or how various accounting practices in the bank work was a smaller step than it would be for somebody who's used to a traditional banking system to try to learn all the secrets of the cloud. Yeah. And also, I just believe it was a very attractive market. It's a large market. It had been neglected, so it, it seemed like it was wide open in terms of possibility. So there were many things in there that were attractive, and that's how we got going. You're right. My background's also in some of the bigger banks, and then you know I sort of come into Temenos, so oh, I've had a little bit of experience in core banking. But you're right. You know the central part of it, the accounting engine itself, is very simple. When it comes to the product, right? This is where banks have struggled. By defining an account with an interest rate and set charges, they've been doing that for many years, right? But what we've not seen is any real product innovation because actually those were the definitions, almost hard-coded of the products, right? So what have you done maybe to give greater flexibility in product definitions, you know, so that people can innovate? Well, you're obviously very experienced in the nature of the problem, but the way somebody outside the bank sees a bank doesn't really think of it using the word product, but the bank has got a range of offerings and they select one and then they go about it. But inside a traditional bank, often there's a lot of duplication of function. They're all calculated fees, there's a payment schedule. It doesn't matter if one's savings or a loan or a deposit. So right from the outset, we said we would build a single product engine for everything, right? So two key things. First of all, single product engine for every product, regardless of what. And the second thing was, that this would sit above the platform itself. No matter what you wanted to do in the product, you would not have to change the source code of the platform. Right, coincidentally at that time, I was reading a lot about the code or the algorithms behind blockchain and Ethereum, and I was very captivated by the notion of smart contracts. And therefore that gives the inspiration to use smart contracts as the way to build products in the bank. And so a smart contract is just a piece of code. In our case, it's Python code. And the Python code just literally defines IOU or you or me. And it has the ability to hold the nature of the product in terms of what the assets and liabilities are and also move money. Whereas a traditional contract just spells it out but can't do anything, it just sits there, right? So it's a somewhat fancy term for something that's pretty basic. Smart contracts, people thought they would become very big in the world of derivatives and things like that. And I'm pretty sure that is going to happen. But we thought it'd be nice. So the smart contract exists between the bank and the bank's customer. But within the smart contract, it's a powerful language. It sits above the platform. So yep. it's an encapsulated piece of code. that's pretty simple. It just calculates how the product works. And from that basis, it's a relatively simple matter to adjust it for mortgages or credit cards or deposits and loans. And we've done all the full suite of everything. I wouldn't say every product under the sun, but virtually because banks come to us all the time and saying, you know, we've got savings accounts in Italy done this way, we've got mortgages in Australia, we're done that way, we've got credit cards in Hong Kong, we're done a different way, and we've always succeeded at doing it and implementing these products. It allows the bank to offer any product it wants, but it does not add complexity into the software. You're not encumbered with product after product after product. It, right. it all sits in a lightweight, manageable fashion. It's kind of really interesting to think about that kind of flexibility. I guess one of the questions I've got is, kind of allude to it in terms of the way banks are structured around product silos effectively. And my view of what's happened over the last 20 years in terms of digital transformation is it's sort of more optimization of what's there. Actually, what you've got is a new way of looking at defining products and managing those products in a more efficient way. But how have banks responded to that from a kind of cultural point of view? Because I guess what we've seen is the drag of 
banks being taken kicking and screaming into the future because they do things in an old way. So I just wondered if you've got any observations around that. Yeah, I think that's a good question. When we first started, my initial guess was we would start pitching to banks and they would just go, who are you? You know, what are you doing? Why are you talking about smart contracts? Why are you talking about cloud computing? And I think our timing was spot on. And a lot of that is just good fortune and timing. We were not good fortune in terms of designing a product. We knew exactly what we were doing. But I think our timing was spot on. And a few things drove that. First of all, the banks were moving to the cloud anyway, and they wanted to do that just for all the benefits the cloud offers. And eventually you're going to have to move the core banking engine to the cloud. So our timing was very good on that. There's been a cultural change in large banks whereby previously they all wrote their own systems. And they realized that isn't the way it seems because your software team develops it, but it's only got one client. It just isn't good to do that. And also the bank wants to focus on the bits of the bank that, quite frankly, you know, earn it money and deepen its own customer relationship. And core bank needs to be done very well, but the bank wants the problem solved, right? And in principle, it's happy for a third party to do it as long as we can do it well. So most of our pitches in business are not in the persuasion business, we're in the proving business. So, so, <laughs> right. so most of the conversation that we go in, the bank gets it, the bank gets their need, they totally get it, they sold about the cloud, they sold about product simplification, they sold about a unified way of doing things, they sold about a cost base, they just want us to prove it. But that's a far more pleasant engagement than a kind of persuasion, yes. a, a, yeah. a persuasion which is a tougher gig. And of course, we've listened very, very deeply. While we build it our own way, we listen very deeply every time we engage in a client and make sure that we absolutely nail the things that they need to do. But we do that by looking at the deep need of the bank. For example, some conversations where, well, our previous core banking engine does less, can you do that? But that's not a good solution. What we do is, but why do you need that? Ah, well, you need that because you need these regulatory proving points, you need these accounting changes, and therefore we do that and we stick to our good design principles, but also we satisfy there, so it becomes a win-win. You know, it's been a very pleasant journey because we're selling to more and more and more banks, but they're now expected to work. And it's all about, you know, how quickly can we scale, how quickly can we adopt it, how quickly can we roll it out. And it's very pleasant to see the level of trust that we've got within the banks becoming more and more comfortable that this is clearly the right thing to do. I'm intrigued as well because as an outsider, when I was in the core banking space, as an outsider, you look in and say, hmm, that looks like a really interesting team. They've definitely got good technical people, right? And yes, we know that the core banking piece is pretty straightforward. The product definition piece is more complex because of the flexibility banks need. And then there's all this periphery stuff, which isn't necessarily core banking, but core banking vendors have built it over years and years, right? Bits like the regulatory piece. But what have you done other than with your customers, you know, to really get into understanding, A, how banks work and B, you know, where their heads are at. Because some of their problems now are kind of legacy, right? Because as they've said, they've had, you know, silos and those silos created separate little empires or actually legal entities, right? So the mortgage division didn't really talk to their cards division. Their cards division had their own budget, so they bought their own court. They don't need to do that anymore with a platform like yours. I can understand with the way that you've written it that you're going to get ultimate scalability because certainly cards is a totally different ballgame when it comes to volume in transactions to you know an account. So that's all good. But what about the way that a bank is structured? Can you still, with your platform, 
separate data if they're separate entities. Like if it was NetWest, could you run it for NetWest and First Direct separately? Yes. As I said, the key is to reach into the underlying need of the bank. Imagine back in the day when you had a relatively simple bank that had a single brand and a single branch network and a single range of products, mortgages and credit cards. So that all fits on the one platform. But as you know, so there's a lot of smaller banks and we need to be super efficient. We need to have a really good run cost and really good deployment cost. And we serve that market well because they do well because through plan engagement, you know, community engagement, things like that. So we do well in that market. But the bigger banks have organizational complexity. We've got some features today, we're building some features next year, but we have the ability to deal with organizational complexity. So that, for example, there's different ways to do it. So we can have multiple instances of the core banking engine which sit by side by side, but one of them does this brand of the bank and one of them does that brand of the bank. Or you can have it all in a single instance and then you can partition it in a logical way and that means you could do, for example, a Scandinavian bank has multiple currencies, multiple regulators, but you could do it so we can have reporting, liquidity reporting, insolvency reporting, and balance sheet reporting for, for different parts of the bank in different jurisdictions and different currencies. And then we can also partition it by brand and say, for example, you know, with Lloyd's at Bank of Scotland and as Halifax, and so we can partition it according to the brand. And again, ring fencing and things like this. So all this can be done. But it's just based on the notion that we know large banks are complex. Let's not get shocked when we get there. Yeah. And by the way, it's not an option for every part of the bank to run independently because there are regulations that say that the total amount of liability that any one customer can acquire needs to be limited, right? You can't hand out a credit card here and here and here and here and say, well, we didn't know about it. So they have to be joined anyway, right? So all banks have to have a single view of the customer. Have to do it. All banks have to have a global view of risk management and of liquidity management and credit risks. So, so you have to join all these things anyway. But the number of ways to split a bank is relatively limited by brand, by jurisdiction, and by currency, by time zone. You put all those in there and then you've got a powerful engine that, that can serve a lot. One of the things which I think is really interesting is then the ability to serve a customer across maybe business and personal kind of needs. So I think one of your implementations, customers can kind of sweep between having a business account and a personal account, which I think if you're a small business owner, it makes perfect sense because you declutterize your banking. But I guess before that's been very complex because the business and corporate side is very separate from the kind of personal side. So I think it's a good example where actually building something in one place puts the customer at the heart of it and then you can devise new products for them or services for them, which kind of makes sense to them. Yeah, and as a business owner myself, I felt the pain from going... <laughs> So when Popmachine started, we opened a small business account and then of course we became a larger business and now we're growing into a property multinational and every part of that move up the banking chain has been painful because we've had to hop around from different parts of the bank. So part of the Thought Machine business bank offering is a guarantee that when you start a single sole trader all the way up to a massive a multinational, that will be a smooth, smooth path all the way up. You know, as an entrepreneur, that's a journey I believe in, of course. I'm not on the technology side, I'm much more about the experience mm. and looking at things from a customer point of view. But I've been through the same journey myself yep. and sort of scratched my head as to why, you know, you kind of move between pillar and post as part of it, which kind of erodes your confidence in the bank supporting you, which is a weird thing, isn't it? Because they should be there as your kind of cheerleaders as you grow your business. Yeah, I mean, we're actually very happy with the service of the banks that we use ourselves. We see the technology every day and we think, oh, we really have to improve this. 
Yeah. Again, one of the things I, I guess that you have within the ledger is the ability to do things very quickly, as I think you were yeah. which means that you can actually start developing as a financial institution new products and services that weren't available before in terms of the way that core banking was structured. So how are some of your customers going about that in terms of their thinking around how to use ThoughtChoose from a propositional point of view? One of the nice ways, which may seem a little bit paradoxical, is that ThoughtChoose doesn't often get very involved in the propositions because our job is to be the enabler. So what we typically find is that the bank comes to us, they want to launch a new digital bank or they want to launch a new product and they come and say, we're frustrated, you know, we've had a look around, can you do it? And we're always up to the challenge. So in the early engagement with the bank, we nearly always do a very quick proof of concept and show them a live running version of that product, you know, within days of the engagement and say, here it is, have a go, have a play. And then they kind of put all the clickable prototypes away and all that kind of stuff. And then they're into really developing the product and how it's going to work with the actual system rather than having some frustrating view of having to design it without ever seeing it implemented. So that follows the best design practices that we know today of the minimal viable product and iteration of the customer. It just creates a completely different way of working and dynamic with the bank. Now, of course, I then see many of the banks then get super excited and immediately go to the next thing and go to the next thing. But that's great because that's where they need to be. They need to be responding to their customers really quickly and then showing what can be done. Fantastic. Just to step back a little bit, when did you start Port Machine? How big are you now? Yeah, we started in 2014. As of today, we're about 550 people worldwide. Wow. Where you are today is London. That's the main headquarters. About 400 people work here. Our two other headquarters are in Singapore and New York, but we've got people now, I think, in 18 different countries. I'm just about to go to a trip to Asia Pacific and got to meet our team working. So I'm going to Mr. Wild for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we've got a team in Australia, we've got a team in Thailand, we've got a team in Indonesia, we've got a team in Vietnam, teams all over the Americas. So it's growing international operation all the time. Wow, you're no startup anymore, that's for sure. We call ourselves a growth stage tech company, but in some sense, it still feels exactly the same as it did in the first year. We still have the same sort of day-to-day culture, and we still set the same tone. Um, culture is more scalable than people would think it would be. So I still tremendously enjoy it. I don't feel encumbered by the growth of the company. It feels liberating, and it's a happy and exciting place to work, just like it always was. <laughs> it's such a great story for the UK, I think, in terms of starting something, going very international. I know you've got a kind of strong presence in Asia and, you know, you've got some great case studies in that part of the world as well. So, yeah, congratulations. I think it's fantastic. Our time is up, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It's been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so Uh, much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.